One, two, three. Welcome to CI415 Podcast. We are Podcast Group 3, and we are all super excited to share our thoughts, opinions, and give you all a better insight of who we are as individuals and a group. We hope you are all doing well this beginning fall season and staying healthy. It's raining and it's pouring outside. It's raining and it's pouring outside, but as always for now, Christina, cue the music. to switch this week up with a quick question for all of our podcast hosts. What language did you learn in high school if you took a foreign, foreign, foreign language class? So I will start and I didn't have to take any foreign, foreign language classes in high school because my school was already a, a bilingual school and we were already learning a foreign language. But uh, when I was a junior, a teacher opened a French club so I joined and I learned like a little bit, but not a lot. And I forgot everything I learned already. <laughs> Hi, I'm Yaelin. Um, So in my high school, we only had two language options. It was Spanish or French. And I decided to take like the easy way out and I took Spanish, but I intentionally like pretended I didn't know Spanish at all. And they put me in like the non-native Spanish class. So it was really easy. Um, I'm Annette. Uh, I took Spanish in high school and I also took a little bit of Spanish in middle school as well. Hey guys, I'm Amira. Um, so uh, I took Arabic in middle school and elementary school and then so high school I decided to do Arabic again. 
um, but I took formal Arabic and little did I know that if you do go to like Middle Eastern country and speak formal they will laugh at you so I feel like sometimes I'm like why did I go why did I spend like 13 years of my life learning this but hey, I love it and every so often when I do talk to my Arab friends it's just fun because they like they think I'm speaking like a professional person but yeah that's pretty much it thank you everyone um, so today I'm going to start off by defining the terms for this week. The first term is translanguaging. So translanguaging is the act performed by bilinguals of accessing different linguistic features or various models, modes of what they are described as autonomous yeah, languages <laughs> in order to maximize communicative potential. Code switching, the practice of alternating between two or more languages or varieties of language and conversation, and translanguaging classrooms. Translanguaging happens fluidly in the classroom, but teachers can also support translanguaging by intentionally guiding students to use all of their linguistic abilities. Thank you, Yalen, for defining the terms of this week. So in this podcast, this week, we will be defining and highlighting translanguaging and code switching. Likewise, we will be defining the two terminologies and how they play a role in our classrooms. Uh, most importantly, this week, we will be focusing on encouraging translanguaging environments in our future classrooms and creating an environment in which all of our students from different linguistic backgrounds are in an inclusive and comfortable space to embrace their linguistic identity. Now, let's, 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 let's pass it on to Annette. So even though bilingual students have always existed in this country, there were not always laws to, to protect their right to an education. One of the first and one of the most important lawsuits took place in 1954 in a lawsuit called Brown versus Board of Education. This is where the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to discriminate in education based on race, skin color, or national origin. Title VI of this act says that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. This led to Title VII, known as the Bilingual Education Act. Under this act, it was determined that emergent bilinguals must be able to participate effectively in all programs and content areas. Then, in the 1970s, there was a lawsuit called Lao versus Nichols that took place when Chinese-American parents noticed their children were not receiving quality education. This led to a law that states that students should be given a curriculum in the language that they understand. If a student doesn't understand the language, the student is not being educated. This lawsuit was made under Title VII. English-only laws have impacted bilingual education in many different ways. According to the reading, Programs and Policies for Educating Emergent Bilinguals, one way that English-only laws have impacted bilingual education would be that those who did not understand English found it hard to comprehend instructions and in general comprehend what was going on. 
It also made it hard for some students because the experiences in their classrooms weren't meaningful since they didn't understand what was going on. So basically, students who didn't understand English were foreclosed from meaningful education. Thank you, Annette. Now I'm going to talk about what programs are available for emergent bilinguals now. Programs in schools for English language learners vary a lot. Some focus on exposing the child to the language and hoping they learn with time. Others help the students slowly transition to English while some, while some offer a range of resources to help the child learn English while keeping their first language too. The first program I am going to talk about is the Submersion Program, more commonly known as Sink or Swim. This program was used mostly in the 1970s, but it is still used today, especially in parts of the country where there is an English-only initiative. It focuses on placing English language learners in the same classroom as English speakers and not giving them any additional resources. This program also does not encourage the use of the student's first language in the classroom. The second category of programs are known as ESL or English as a Second Language and ENL or English as a new language and this focuses more on giving students the support they need outside and inside the classroom to be able to transition from their native language to English. These programs usually do not incorporate the student's native language in the classroom. Finally, the last category is characterized because these programs often incorporate the student's native language into the studies. In Illinois, Right now, there is a program that was implemented in 2008 called Title III, Language Instruction Programs for Limited English Proficient and Immigrant Students. This is a state-funded program that wants to help English, English language learners become proficient in English and adapt to the general education curriculum. The first part of this program is called TBE, or Transitional Bilingual Education. This program is implemented if there are 20 or more students in the same school that speak the same language. This program has to provide education both in English and in the student's home language in all subjects and aims to get students into the mainstream classroom as soon as possible. The second part of this program is called TPI or Transitional Program of Instruction. In the reading, this program is called Developmental Bilingual Education. This program is implemented if there are 19 or fewer students in the same school that speak the same language. This program provides students with support in their native language as well as the history of their native country and of the United States. This program is different from the other one because this one aims to help the student maintain the first language while still learning English. These are the most common programs for emergent bilinguals in Illinois given that in the latest report that was in 2010, more than 80% of schools have these types of state-funded English language learning programs. Thank you, Christina and Annette. So for this podcast, I'll be discussing translanguaging versus code switching. I'll quickly clarify that translanguaging does not equal code switching. To begin differentiating the terms, translanguaging can be thought of as an insider's perspective while code switching is an outsider's perspective. To deepen our understanding of the difference between the terms, we must first understand what named languages are. 
Selenine languages refers to the linguistic systems that have been named by various institutions or groups of institutions. For example, linguists and governments give a name to a set of linguistic features spoken by a shared group. This is done to define the group for the purpose of studying them or creating policies around them respectively. So these groups are all ones that don't speak English, so they're not white, not English speakers. Um, the history and the emergence of named languages relates back to colonizing institutions who had an interest in studying the people they were colonizing, usually to subjugate and govern them. In order to justify the genocide and slavery of indigenous people and other foreign groups, the idea of race and racial hierarchy was created. Um, but this podcast is only 30 minutes long, so I'm not going to go into depth about this, but I think we'll sort of know, like, or the U.S.'s racist history. Yeah. Um, but yeah, colonizers had a racist view of the people they colonized, and when the colonizers would study and categorize their linguistic practices, it would usually be described as childlike or primitive, devaluing the way that they communicated. And colonizers decided that if the way a group of people communicated is obviously not English, then they just gave them like a different name to separate it, and yeah. So the colonizers gave them their own linguistic category, their own name, and their own box language. And this was like really messed up because this is how they um, established their dominance of other groups because they were an outsider coming into an indigenous land and they had brought with them like very specific set of assumptions of what constitutes a language and essentially forced other people's linguistic practices into a box for their own benefit. And when we are talking about code switching between named languages, we are assuming a lot of things. So first we assume that the name language, like name languages exist in nature and we forget that like the historical process that actually helped invent those name languages. Um, before like name languages were a thing, people just spoke and communicated with each other, but there was no name for it. It was just the way people were able to translate ideas. And we forget that somewhere along the way, there was like a group of people in an institution that had a political interest in investing in inventing or discovering linguistic systems. The next assumption is that we believe that sorting out linguistic features into name languages is a good starting point for language learners. So then what follows from there is that we start attaching value to certain linguistic features and not others. We say that this language is good in school that this language is good for a job interview, that um, not this that this language is not appropriate here, but it is there. So code switching entails that speakers utilize their knowledge of languages as separate sets of tools. They determine which language will gain them the most acceptance in a certain situation or context, allowing them to best function with others. And it refers to the idea that bilinguals manipulate two separate name linguistic systems. Schools try to teach language learners as if our language learning brain naturally accepts those divisions between the linguistic systems and just because that's how they think language works and so our brain must work like that too. The translanguaging model on the other hand proposes that we teach our kids a new way of existing in the world and that they have a unified repertoire of linguistic features and not boxes. It's concerned with the effectiveness of communication the implications of this view of language is radical because it requires you to get rid of the separations between name languages. So 
English and Spanish are no longer separate. It's all like built into like a, a person's like ability to use language. So they're able to mix and match or to use different ones. But it's not all different. It's all just their full like pool of knowledge. Um, so we must rethink some basic fundamental beliefs about our lives. And not to mention all of the scholarship that's built up on this assumption that multiple languages exist in the first place. So instead of splitting our students' brains in half, we have a giant unified collection of languaging features. It, er oh my gosh. No, you're good, you're <laughs> it good. erases the split of conventionally recognized name languages like English and Spanish, and it overturns some very basic common sense. Like for example, we would no longer need like separate classes to teach separate languages if we take away those boxes, or at least like considering how those boxes is, boxes can be damaging to society. Um, Translanguaging tells us that we have a lot of work to do in regards to deconstructing the hierarchy of language in the U.S. And yeah, in summary, translanguaging requires that we move away from thinking about a person speaking one language or multiple languages to a person that is a languager that is always languaging. I'm sorry, that was long. <laughs> no, thank you, thank you so much, Jaylene. So um, uh, thanks to everything that um, Christina Annette, and Yaline talked about today. Right now, I'm going to talk about translanguaging in our classroom and what we can do as future educators to incorporate it in our curriculum and all that stuff. So um, from this week, we understood that translanguaging classroom is pretty much leveraging a student's bilingualism for learning shows teachers, administrators, professional development providers, and researchers how to use translanguaging to, to level the playing field for bilingual students in English medium and bilingual classrooms. The term, the term translanguaging can be understood in two different ways. From a sociolinguistic perspective, translanguaging can be understood as the dynamic language practices of bilinguals. From a pedagogical perspective, translanguaging can be understood as an instructional and assessment framework that teachers can use strategically, strategically and purposefully too. So there's four reasons how why they can use it. The first one is to support bilingual students as they engage with and, with and comprehend complex content and text. The second is to provide opportunities for bilingual students to develop linguistic practices for academic context. And the third is to make space for student bilingualism and ways of understanding. And the fourth reason why it's purposeful is to support our bilingual students as socio-emotional development and bilingual identities. Translanguaging happens fluidly in the classroom, but teachers can also support translanguaging by intentionally guiding students to use all of their linguistic abilities. A good example that we can hear, we can think of is teachers can use, ask students to write stories with bilingual characters who use both of their languages. The, the intentionality behind this teaching practice is to provide an almost flexible and comfortable space for students to fully share what they know across all of their language. Our reading this week um, article, it, highlight, it highlighted four main purposes of translanguaging in our classroom, and we identify four main primary translanguages, translanguaging purposes, and it's pretty much the four like I mentioned from before. And like these four purposes, purposes work together to advance social justice, and that is when teachers effectively leverage students' bilingualism for learning. They help level the playing field for bilingual students at our schools. 
However, a lot of translanguaging programs are often not promoted within dual language education. This is also like understood as DLE programs. So many DLE programs emphasize strict language allocation policies that limit the use of partner language during English time and vice versa. In the in the classroom, some examples of translanguaging may involve translanguaging translating between between languages, comparing and being play, playful with different languages, but like also respectful because I know sometimes it can get out of like bounds with like playfulness. The third one is mixing words and expressions from different languages in the same spoken or written or utterance, and the fourth is using the home language in one part of an activity and the school language in another part. Thus, students might listen to information in one language and explain it orally in another. Similarly, similarly, they might read a text in one language and talk about it or summarize it in, a, in writing it in another. As a resource for both teachers and students, translanguaging has many education. Educa oh my goodness, translanguaging has many educational benefits because it validates multilingualism, viewing it as a va valuable asset rather than a problem or a temporary transitional interactional tool in early schooling. It represents a more efficient and effective teaching and learning technique that is possible in one language only. It offers opportunities for individuals to develop rich and varied communicative repertoires for use within and outside our school. And also, I think another really big thing is like for teachers who, um, let's say, like I feel like a really dominant language that, um, like for example, like Spanish in our classroom. Like I went to school with a lot of Latinx students and Hispanic students, and unfortunately, like I never understood Spanish growing up and stuff, and I haven't learned it, which is kind of sad. But I feel like another really big thing is just creating a classroom in which teachers like almost like pick up a few words from their language and kind of incorporate it and stuff and vice versa and kind of like if there's a similarity in ways we pronounce things I think it's really cool so um there are five ways we can start incorporating translanguaging in our classroom. The first one is to lab label objects in the classroom in multiple languages. The second way is to give students of all language abilities uh, their time to shine. The third one is stock your classroom with age-appropriate books and multimedia resources in the languages of your students. And the fourth one is when grouping students for collaborative work, allow your students with the, with the same native language to work together. This allows them to receive a full and deep understanding of the assi assignment and the fifth and last step that I feel like we can all take is learn keywords in your student native languages like I said before it's really important to be a co-learner learn from the children and your students about their language cultural practices and their understandings of the world to create a translanguaging space for some ELL students schools may be the only place where they use their English skills but it can also be um very isolating if no one takes an interest in their native language or culture. So uh, I know it was pretty much a lot, but hopefully, Christina, we could do a quick music break because we need a water break for like uh, a minute.
Okay, so um, I feel like now... <laughs> I feel like now that we're pretty much done with the bulk load of what translanguaging is and how we read it in our class readings and how we like understood it, I feel like we can discuss that a little bit more, um, right guys? And yeah. I feel like we can like discuss a little bit more and see ways in which we can incorporate it. And like like I said in my like not my lecture, <laughs> like I said in my like part, um, I was talking to I talked to you guys about it like a few weeks ago because I was just genuinely interested because you guys do speak Spanish and stuff too, and I was like um, I know like I feel like Spanish is really emerging more and I I'm really, I'm also in schools that you see mostly populated with only white students emerging more and stuff too. What can we do as like educators or like myself as a future educator who doesn't speak Spanish and stuff to make um, such a dominant language that I unfortunately don't know like. How can I do that to my students who do speak Spanish like as their first language? For me, I grew up, like I've said before, like my school had a lot of teachers from the United States and from Canada. And for me, the most important thing was just like, like having an open attitude, just like being willing to listen. And like the first thing for me was like, don't put rules in your classroom that purposefully don't allow, allow your students to speak Spanish. I had a lot of teachers that were like, if I don't understand the language, then no one is speaking it in my classroom because they were like offended or they would be like, what if my students are like insulting me or something Yeah. in the class. Um, so that I would say that's the first thing. And also to understand that language comes with a culture mm-hmm. and to be open to like, I don't know, celebrating the holidays or talking to your students about what they're doing with their culture. Yeah. When you, Christina, when you mentioned how, like, you went into that open-minded and, like, with a good attitude, like, if, like... (laughs) like why can't teachers do that you know like you're going into that classroom Mm -hmm. thinking okay like I'm going to come go in it with a positive attitude even though Mm -hmm. like I might not understand what's happening but then teachers are like oh I don't understand you you can't like say you know like that's just messed up that you have to do that but the teachers can't I think it's like the colonialism inside the Mm -hmm. teachers sometimes yeah it's internal colonialism it's peeking out like they truly think that English like the same thing we were talking about last week, like English is the superior language and because they come from the United States or like a first world country, they are like more important. I think it's that, but like um, not that like explicit. Yeah. yeah. Also like, uh, I remember in, uh, in class this week on Zoom, she read like, she showed us like the books in like Korean and stuff. And I thought that was so cool. And, like, also because um, I think also, like, we did this over summer when I was doing my little summer internship with the kids. I mean, with the students. But it was pretty much, like, um, like the teacher put, it was, like, she put a video on. And, of course, like, the a write, the reader was reading it in Korean. But they had subtitles. And the words were pretty simple, like, cat, hat, and stuff. But it was it was nice to see, like, the kids who, of course, like, um, majority couldn't read like understand nor read Korean but it was good to see that they're like oh cat and then hat you know and it's good to like associate for students who are Korean in our classroom and stuff mm-hmm. too and I thought it was like so smart it was mm-hmm. just like it was just fun too like that's what you because like oh I feel like this week we also talked about how there's a certain age limit where children pick up more languages yeah. faster mm-hmm. like and I think that's where it's like like the IQ level that you can make a kid go because just being exposed yeah. to like different yeah. languages at that mm-hmm. age is insane 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to go back to what, like, Annette said, saying it was, like, unfair for um, Christina's teachers to be like, hey, don't speak Spanish because I won't understand yeah. it. Because, like, when I went into school, like, I didn't understand, like, English at all. And, like, I had to put, like, context clues together. Like, mm-hmm. if the teacher said good morning to me, like, I didn't know what she was saying, but I just assumed she said, good like, morning. when yeah. he asked. Yeah. I'm like, like okay, 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 I'm like, yeah, hi. Yeah. You were, you like, know? in a sink or swim program. Yeah, and yeah. I think, like, teachers can do that, too. Like, yeah. if the student says they're hungry, they're probably, like, holding, like, their belly. So yeah. they're like, oh, they want a snack. Or if they're, like, you know, jumping up and down, saying, like, baño, baño. Yeah. And you're like, oh, they have to use the bathroom. Yeah. Like, like you don't, don't force them to, like, speak English. Like, because you can communicate even if you don't understand yeah. what the other person's saying. Like, no, 100%. Yeah. You know, by how they're moving their hands or their body. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you're already going to school to learn like math or like I don't know grammar and all that like Mm -hmm. imagine like you're doing two things at once like that's so Mm -hmm. difficult for a kid to try Mm -hmm. to understand what the teacher's saying while also trying to learn the subject like yeah and I feel like that's why it's so easy to label like emergent bilinguals as like being behind in school yeah because they are not being like their abilities are not being tested it's just a language barrier that doesn't Mm -hmm. let them like actually show what they know yeah exactly Mm -hmm. Like, in preschool, like, I already knew my ABCs, my numbers and colors and everything, because my mom showed me, but I just didn't know what they were in English. Yeah. And so, like, my teacher, like, she, I got held back in preschool for, like, a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, one of them was because she thought, yeah. like, I didn't know. And I think that, like, bothers me so much personally, because, like, you probably, I mean, like, um, I don't want to, like, degrade <laughs> English for a second or anything, but I'm just saying, like, you already exposed, like, your brain is already exposed to another part of your language, and that's, like, you don't see that until you've learned, mm-hmm. um, like, English, which is such a base language, you know, mm-hmm. so you, like, the fact that your brain already did that at that age is, like, something that should actually yeah. be, like, an asset, yeah, but it was kind of used against you, you know, and I think, like, a really big thing that we've noticed over time and stuff is just, like, um, when teachers who are like or or like white teachers in our classroom and like you know if a student's talking in like a different language or something it's like that barrier and it's not even like language I feel like it's also like respecting uh, your student's cultural identity and like the struggles that they may go through like as a first-gen student as a POC student as a student part of the LGBTQ community you know like understanding like the struggles and like internalized racism that's like everywhere and stuff so I feel like tr- language is just, like, the base of it, and it just mm-hmm. grows into so much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. Like, in one of the podcasts we had to listen for this week, like, it mentioned how historically, like, bilingual education's goal was to create English speakers, and it, neg- it neglected, like, the students' fluency in other languages. Yeah. So, like, they were seen through, like, a deficit lens because they were, le- like, bilingual students, they're learning a second language, but they're seen as deficit because they're learning English. Yeah. But when white students, like, who speak English natively learn a different language, they're like, oh, wow, you're so smart. Or, like, mm-hmm. you're getting ahead. Like, yeah. you're for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, yeah, I think this was a good week. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, we'll just talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye. Ready? <coughs> One, two, three. Welcome to our CI415 podcast. We are podcast group three, and we are all super excited to share our thoughts, opinions, and give you all a better insight of who we are as individuals and a group. We hope you're all doing well this beginning. 
actually not beginning middle of fall season it's getting pretty cold out there i hope you're staying healthy and keeping warm but as always for now christina cue the music switch this week up with a quick question for all of our podcast hosts did teachers support trans language in, in your schools so i'm going to start i feel like in my school some teachers supported trans languaging while others didn't and like did not encourage it in the classroom the teachers that encouraged it uh, allowed us to discuss the topics in spanish and didn't mind if we mixed spanish and english while discussing in class uh, but others like I've said before, uh, really found it offensive if we spoke in in Spanish in front of them because they couldn't understand. So while some were actively like preventing translanguaging, some supported. Um, so I honestly am not a hundred percent sure which of my teachers supported translanguaging and which ones <laughs> didn't. But I think a lot of my teachers at my school definitely could have done more to support translanguaging. Yeah, I agree with Annette. Like, I'm not really sure which of my teachers exactly supported it. But I would say generally none of my teachers I had really did. I had a few teachers tell me I wasn't allowed to speak Spanish in pre-K and first grade and some other grade levels. But my other teachers never, like explicitly stated that I couldn't like use Spanish but they also never like outwardly encouraged students to speak languages other than English um, unless there was like a special circumstance like we had a student who transferred 
like directly from a Hispanic country like Honduras or Guatemala and they didn't speak any English and only then we were only restricted to translating only unless we had recess and then like you know they couldn't control like which languages we spoke yeah so for me personally um my high school did not um encourage translanguaging in our classrooms at all I don't know why but they always said like um to try to speak something that all of us can understand which I thought was kind of problematic because sometimes like a lot of our parents were also um um well a lot of our parents weren't white so it was really hard especially in parent teacher conferences for like our white teachers to try to create those connections with uh parents who are like um first gen first immigrant immigrant parents so I feel like yeah they didn't really try hard enough and I kind of wish they did try hard enough just for students and also for parents too yeah. yeah, thank you everyone. Um, so this week we're going to start off by defining the terms. Um, a lot of these are reviewed from our other podcast. So translanguaging is the act performed by bilinguals of accessing different linguistic features or various modes of what are described as autonomous languages in order to maximize communicative potential. Translanguaging in classrooms often happens fluidly but teachers can also support translanguaging by intentionally guiding students to use all of their linguistic abilities. Multilingual identity, it's the more languages a person speaks, each language or even all the languages have an important factor that shape the identity of an individual. And ELL means English language learner. So in the podcast this week, we will be highlighting bilingual education, literacies of multilinguals, and multilingual identity. And then we will also be breaking down the acronym ELL, as Yalen just did. Most importantly, this week we will be focusing on encouraging translanguaging environments in our future classrooms and creating an environment in which all of our students can openly speak the language that they choose to speak. Likewise, we will be highlighting different bilingual education cases, laws, and acts that somewhat help promote bilingualism and try to specifically help bilingual students in our classroom. Notice how I highlighted try because bilingualism is still not heavily promoted in our classroom till today or else all of our experiences would have been a definite yes. As future educators, I also want to highlight that it is our job to help our bilingual students by creating an environment that practices translanguaging and also create, creating an environment in which I can help my students who speak other language feel comfortable in speaking those languages, even, although I may not speak them. So yeah, let's pass it on to Annette. So I'm going to start off with talking about some bilingual education cases that have impacted bilingual education. I talked about a couple of these cases in our last podcast as well. So even though bilingual students have always existed in this country, there were not always laws to protect their right to an education. So one of the first and one of the most important cases took place in 1954 in a lawsuit called Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to to discriminate in education based on race, skin color, or national origin. Title VI of this act says that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, B 
be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. This led to Title VII, known as the Bilingual Education Act. Under this act, it was determined that emergent bilinguals must be able to participate effectively in all programs and content areas. Then, in the 1970s, there was a case called Lao versus Nichols that took place when Chinese-American parents noticed their children were not receiving quality education. This led to a law that states that students should be given a curriculum in the language that they understand. If a student doesn't understand the language, the student is not being educated. This lawsuit was made under Title VII. Another case that I want to talk about is the Cerna versus Portales Municipal Schools case. In this case, students with Spanish surnames <laughs> achieved less than those with non-Spanish surnames. The court ruling showed the achievement gap between Hispanic and non-Hispanic students, and then eventually this mo motivated the government to address the situation. The court ruled that the school district should implement a bilingual or bicultural education program. English-only laws have impacted bilingual education in many different ways. Those who did not understand English found it hard to comprehend instructions and in general comprehend what was going on. This made it harder for those students to be successful and have the same achievements as others who didn't have this problem. It also took away from their experiences since they didn't always understand what was going on. Students who didn't understand English were foreclosed from a meaningful education. Thank you, Annette. Now I'm also going to give an example of one of the most important court cases that impacted bilingual education laws. So this is the Castañeda versus Pickard case, and it happened in 1978 in Texas. This case was against the Raymondville Independent School District, in, uh, and it was done by Roy Castañeda, who was the father of two Mexican-American children. He filed the lawsuit under Title VI, because his children were being discriminated against because of their ethnicity and skin color. He said that the students were being segregated and being put in groups just based on their ethnicity, and this was happening all the time. Also, the school was not implementing their bilingual program correctly. As a result, the students were not able to learn English, and they had a lot of language barriers that prevented them from actively participating in class and learning everything their classmates were learning. This case is often compared to Lau versus Nichols because the same rights were being, were being violated. After the Lau versus Nichols case, the Supreme Court ruled that all schools in the country need to take action in order to ensure that students who don't speak, speak English as a first language have the ability to overcome educational barriers that are associated with a lack of understanding of the language. The Castañeda versus Pickard lawsuit occurred because the Raymondville Independent School District was not in compliance with this law. This case was tried in 1978, but the court ruled against the Castañedas and said that the Raymondville Independent School District had not violated any laws. But then, in 1981, Castañeda filed an appeal and the Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the case. 
As a result, uh, there was a law put in place that determined that all bilingual education programs need to pass three a three-part assessment to determine how they're going to be held responsible of meeting the requirements of the Equal Education Opportunities Act. The three criteria are, first, that the bilingual education program must be based on sound education theory. Second is that the program must be implemented effectively with resources for personnel, instructional material, and space. And three, that after a trial period, the program must be proven effective in overcoming language barriers and handicaps. Due to, this, um, due to cases like this one, having a bilingual program in schools is now mandatory. Some programs focus on helping students transition from their first language to English so that they can be fully incorporated into mainstream classrooms, while other programs encourage students to keep their first language and use it to teach English as a second language. ESL or English as a Second Language and ENL or English as a New Language programs focus on giving a student the support they need either outside or inside the classroom to be able to transition to English. These programs usually do not incorporate the student's native language in the classroom. The other category of bilingual education programs is characterized because the, these programs often incorporate the student's native language into the studies. In Illinois right now, there is a program that was implemented in 2008 called Title III, Language Instruction Programs for Limited English Proficient and Immigrant Students. This is a state-funded program, program that wants to help English language learners become proficient in English and adapt to the general education curriculum. The first part of this program is called TBE, or Transitional Bilingual Education. This program is implemented if there are, if there are 20 or more students in the same school that speak the same language. This program has to provide education in both English and in the student's home language in all subjects and aims to get students into the mainstream classroom as soon as possible. The second part of this program is called TPI or Transitional Program of Instruction. Um, and this one is implemented if there are 19 or fewer students in the same school that speak the same language. This program provides students with support in their native language as well as the history of, the, of their native country and the United States. This program is different from the other one because this one aims to help the students maintain their first language while still learning English. These are the most common programs for emerging bilinguals in Illinois, given that in the latest report that it was in 2010, more than 80% of schools have these types of state-funded ELL programs. Um, thank you, Christina, for your informative, um, informative <laughs> discussion on the uh, case and also ELO and ESL programs in our school and specifically Illinois. So um, today I'm going to uh, continue on exactly what Annette and Christina said and further highlight different legislations and cases that have to do with bilingual education in the United States at least. So bilingual education in the United States was pushed back into the spotlight as a direct result of the 1959 revolution in Cuba. After Fidel Castro, he overthrew the dictatorship and established a communist government. Many middle and upper class Cubans fled to the United States. So um, uh, a large number of these refugees started to s uh, settle in Florida. While educated but with little in the way of re resources, they were assisted quite generously by the federal and state governments. So just like um, 
Yalen mentioned that when uh, a lot of people from Guatemala and Honduras would come down, um, they were they were assisted temporarily in the classroom, but not further down. And so among this assistance in relation to, among this is really uh, this assistance in relation to, um, the uh, refugees that came into Florida. Um, ESL instruction was provided by Dane County, Florida Public Schools, and the school district launched a Spanish for Spanish speakers program. In 1963, a bilingual education program was introduced at the Coralway Elementary School in Miami, directed by both U.S. and Cuban educators. The program began in first through third grade. U.S. and Cuban students received half a day of English and half day of Spanish instruction. And then at lunchtime and recess and during music and art classes, the groups became mixed together. Within three years, the district was able to report benefits for both groups of study because students because students who only spoke English got further exposure to Spanish and vice versa with, vice versa with Spanish-speaking speakers. And so not only were they bilingual, but they also became bicultural by basing each other's music, art, and cultures. This was not an accident. This was kind of the goal of um, bilingual education. And so... Um, so a nut of bilingualism legislation in case it that is highlighted is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did not directly address bilingual education, but it opened a... Uh, but, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Rough day. So, but it opened an important door. door. Um, the act specifically prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin in any program, program <laughs> or activities that receive federal financial assistance. What that means pretty much is that school districts that receive federal aid are required to ensure that minority students are getting the same access to program as non-minority students. This, um, this minority group includes language minority students, and so a terminology used for that is LM, and these are defined as students who live in a home in which a language other than English is spoken. Other than English is spoken. Um, and so... This uh, act would later on, many decades later, would be changed, uh, would be made clear through the Lau versus Nicholas case that um, Annette and Christina talked about. And so then after this, it's the Bilingual Education Act of 1968. And the Elementary and Secondary Act of 1965 was an another important step for bilingual education. In particular, the Act, the Bilingual Education Act of 1965, of 1968 established federal policy for bilingual education citing its recognition of the special education needs of large ch number children of limited english speaking ability in the united states this act pretty much stipulated that the federal government would provide financial assistance for innovative bilingual programs so it was really helpful for funding for funding these programs because funding these programs would be provided for the development of further programs and for imp implementation of staffing and staff training and long-term program program maintenance so further down the line uh, bilingual students would have not only in just elementary school but also middle and high school too so this act has been amended several times since its establishment and it was actually re reauthorized in 1994 as a part of improving the america school act and the basic goal has remained the actual the exact same i mean the basic goal has remained the exact same and that goal was uh, to give access to students um 
further access to bilingual programs for children of limited means. And so then I just, I know we already highlighted the Lau versus Nicholas case, but just to kind of further go in with a little bit more detail, the school district um, countered that its policies during the Lau versus Nicholas case, um, uh, the school district countered that its policies were not discriminatory because it has offered the same instruction to all students regardless of national origin. The lack of English proficiency was not the district's fault, fault when in reality it was because the district was not creating a comfortable environment for their students and was not um and the Chinese students were getting discriminated against so yeah that was pretty much it for me this week and uh, next up you have Yulin Yulin yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry I would try to say Yulin <laughs> I'm gonna be talking about bilingualism in schools particularly related to Latinx students because that's who I am <laughs> So, Moria schools um, right now teach English and Spanish, but it's not really enough to help Latino kids. Roughly 3.8 million students in the U.S. schools are native Spanish speakers, but they are not proficient in English, and they make up a large portion of the approximately 5 million students nationwide identified as English language learners. They are like the fastest growing demographic in schools and also the U.S. population, but Sadly, they're the lowest performing as judged by achievement tests and graduation rates. 67% of students with limited English skills graduated high school after four years in 2016, compared to the 84% of all students according to federal data. And according to several language experts, increasing the amount of high quality long-term dual language programs can close this achievement gap in literacy between English learners and native English speakers after five to six years, but a lot of these programs are not highly available nationwide and students usually transfer out after one or two years and these programs usually don't go on until high school, like in high school these programs are no longer available. Um, but as I said, implementing these types of programs is difficult because a lot of people mistake bilingual education as something for children with learning disabilities mm. and in reality they're like these students are actually have a lot of huge developmental advantages because um, some of the benefits include um, intellect. For example, research has shown that students who can speak and write in multiple languages have cognitive advantages over their monolingual peers. Those who learn a second or third language from a young age are able to develop communication skills and a higher degree of literacy and children who grew up in bilingual environments develop a keen awareness of how language works and have a stronger foundation for learning additional languages in the future. So these kids in, highly in high quality English as second language learning classes um, who are immersed in courses in their native language not only feel empowered, but they're also um, benefit academically, socially, and emotionally. Bilingual education and the practice of teaching non-English speaking children in their native language while they learn English helps Latino students advance academically. But a lot of districts have fought to keep foreign languages out of school, especially after Trump became president. He was very, he created a lot of sentiment against immigrants, particularly Hispanic people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so although studies show that a second language has been linked to improved learning in other subjects, enhanced cognitive ability, and the development of empathy. 
Conservative English-only advocates have held back its solidification in the U.S., leaving them and other minorities at a disadvantage because, um, like it. <laughs> I'm like tired. Yeah, so those who are pro-English or English-only enthusiasts like Donald Trump have fought against bilingual education efforts and favor English immersion policies only. And in the last pro in the last podcast, um, Christina talked about how that doesn't help students at all. They're often left confused because they don't understand what's happening in the classroom. In the classroom. <laughs> so when you think about it, the fact that the U.S. is a monolingual nation is sad because its population is highly multicultural, but it's often not celebrated in the school system. Latin American immig- immigrants need the most support in adapting to American life, but They have to be able to do this without losing their Spanish, which is a useful skill for life and can be maintained through bilingual education. Again, roughly 3.8 million students in the U.S. are native Spanish speakers who aren't proficient in English, and their low performance on achievement tests and low graduation rates can be blamed on the shortage of qualified foreign language teachers and the long and complicated history of bilingual education that Amir just went through. Um, (laughs) with his ties to anti-immigrant undertones as well. Um, So imagine a school where its teaching body actually looked like its students. Today's schools still don't represent the demographical figures of a country where over half of its student population is not white. A lot of students benefit from having teachers that reflect, reflect their cultural, racial, and linguistic backgrounds. Recognition of cultural background information could help in creating numerous bonding moments between pupil and teacher. In my own personal experience, I had a lot of white teachers, and I couldn't relate to a lot of their stories or relate to them in general. Um, and it was really sad. There's only a few teachers that I actually had like a strong connection with, and, with, and those experiences are what motivated me to become a teacher to help students who look like me. Um, yeah, and the concerning demographic mismatch between teachers and students in our schools is very concerning. Latinx students compromise the largest minority demographic in national, uh, in, in, in the nation's schools. Um, they account for about 22% of students, but they only 9% of teachers in the workforce are Hispanic origin. And although white teachers have a lot of empathetic capabilities with non-white students, evidence suggests that there are teachers whose perceptions about a student's ability and behavior are influenced by the race of the student, which is why more Latinx teachers are needed. Instinctively, they are more likely to motivate students to push themselves harder and reach higher goals than those that society expects them to be, which is often less. A lot of white teachers expect that their students aren't at the same academic capability as their white students, and that happened a lot to me growing up. Um, So that's why a lot of people of color have to be exceptional in order to be recognized for like their abilities. And yeah, it's also often the case that teachers and students of similar backgrounds will have more potential for deep and meaningful cultural exchanges than a white and a non-white, than a white teacher and a non-white student will. Latinx teachers are also more likely to plan lessons that are culturally sensitive to their non-white students as well. And I also believe that if a teacher is familiar with a student's cultural background, they'll be less likely to act upon their unconscious bias that stems from negative stereotypes, which will alter how the teacher interacts with students, especially if they hold negative stereotypes related to that student's academic ability. 
Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. So since we're almost close to time, I feel like we can just uh, pop into our discussion real quick and kind of just talk about... I know this week, I kind of feel like the content was a bit like of a review yeah. of mm-hmm. last week's and the week before that, too. But um, what do you guys think about um, bilingual education, like laws and cases in the United mm-hmm. States? Well, I think that... There are definitely a lot that have happened, but I still don't think we are at where we should be with that. Like, there are still a lot of problems, and even though, like, there have been many cases trying to make it better, but I feel like it hasn't. Maybe a little, but, like, there's still a lot of things going on. No, I agree. Like, I feel like all these cases, like, I feel like, okay, yeah, they, like, I feel like it gave them bilingual education and, like, the lack of it, some of attention, but it was, like, decades ago, but it still really hasn't improved or else, like, we all would have seen a huge improvement, but we didn't. We haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's still so shocking that there are states in the United States that have um, English-only laws. Mm Mm-hmm where students are not being, like, English language learners are not being supported. But these conversations just, like, bring more attention to the fact that it's so important that students feel, like, represented in their schools and how that has such a huge impact on the way that they learn and their academic outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was in first grade, I had a white teacher, and I was one of the only, like, four or five, like, students of color. And she told me, like, I wasn't ever going to go to college or achieve anything. And she said a lot of other things to me, too. And, like, that made me not want to go to school for a long time because I'm like, she doesn't like me, so why am I here? And there were other times where I had other teachers tell me, like, I can't be speaking Spanish or, like, you know, Mm -hmm. like, they they had, like, really low expectations for me. Like, mm-hmm. I would transfer schools a lot, too, and the teachers would always give me, like, they would put me in, like, English as a second language programs or, like, special education programs mm-hmm. if they didn't have, like, the ESL programs. Yeah. And, like, I was always really frustrated because they would give me, like, really easy books. Like, some mm-hmm. would even just be pictures, and there would be, like, no words on it. How do you and then, um, that? And, like, I already knew how to read, like, really well, so I was, yeah. like, angry i'm like can i have a different book and they're like no we don't want to give you anything like above your level yeah and i'm like what i think it was really funny too because i was talking to my friends the other day and all of us like well i never moved like i i Mm -hmm. still live in the same place that i was born at like it's kind of funny but um uh, we were all placed in esl programs just because we look like not yeah just because we're colored and like it was just like yeah 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 Wait, sorry. I was just going to ask, how. what grade were you in when your teacher told you that? I was in first grade when the teacher told me I would never go to, like, college. I just want to call out Yale's first grade. Because right now she's in college and she's going to be an early childhood educator. So, you know, call her out. (laughs) Call her out. What's her name? I'm joking. (laughs) How do you even tell a first grader that? Like, what? And also, I think, like, this has nothing to do with this week's uh, topic. But I think, like... 
everyone thinks making it is like romanticizing college Uh when in reality it's like anyone can make it regardless of like you know and i kind of feel like it's disgusting especially with like first gen kids or um students of color when you tell them that because historically students of color have never really made it that far Mm -hmm. because of how like uh race like racist and systemically racist our country is so i kind of like oh i hate when people say stuff like that but you know Yelin's first grade teacher would fight me. <laughs> but yeah, um, so I think that's enough for this week. Yeah. Thank you guys for staying tuned. Bye. Bye.